0: I encourage you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I hope you've come ready to, to study God's word. I hope that studying God's word is exciting to you. Um, it is to me, and 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 sometimes it's not always fun. Sometimes it convicts our hearts, it points out areas of sin in our lives, um, but that's actually good for us. It's good for me when my sin is exposed. Sometimes God's word is encouraging to us, it strengthens us, it lifts us up. Uh, sometimes it teaches us new things about God, things that we need to learn. Um, and so I just pray that this morning God's word does inside of us whatever God wants it to do inside of our hearts and minds, our souls, and that would then lead to actions, us living it out in our day-to-day life. Today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12. through The title of our message is Holy Walk, Pursuing Brotherly Love. Holy Walk, Pursuing Brotherly Love. If I gave you uh, about 10 minutes to list all the ways you could show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you would, you'd probably have a pretty long list. I, I, think, I think you'd be able to th- think of a lot of different things. Maybe you would think of things like this, um, pray for them. I'm sure probably all of us would put that on our, our list. You could pray for them. Um, maybe, maybe you would put something like uh, forgive them or maybe ask for forgiveness if, if I do something wrong towards them. Maybe you would put something on there like, help meet a need in their life. Uh, whatever that is, that could be a hundred or a thousand different things, but help meet a, a need in their life. Maybe you would say something like, uh, do something nice for them, like bake a me- make them make a meal or bake them some cookies or something, especially if they were sick or something like that, uh, Maybe, maybe you would say I could write them a, a note. That would be something that would be kind and loving towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, send them a note of encouragement. Maybe just be there for for them during a difficult time. Just say I'm here. Anything you need, uh, I'm just here. Maybe give them a hug, and uh, and uh, if they if they'll let you during this time, right? Um, maybe a socially distanced air hug. Uh, but those are things that we would that we we would mention. Probably something we would not mention in our list of ways I can show love to my brothers and sisters in Christ is this. Live with a proper work ethic. Live with a proper work ethic. Probably not something that would have made it on my list of ways I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ if I had taken on that challenge this morning of listing uh, a lot of ways I could love you. In Christ. Or we could say it this way Uh, what should go on our list, but maybe it wouldn't be the first thing that we would think of, is this I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ by making sure I'm not unnecessarily intruding into their lives by meddling in their business and mooching off their generosity. Now, when we put it that way, say, yeah, that actually sounds like a way that we could show love to one another. Um, And that's actually where Paul's going in this this passage today. While living with a proper work ethic might not make it onto our list of ways we should love one another, it does make it onto Paul's list and God's list, God inspiring Paul to write this, as to how or, or one way, one of many ways we could. Practically show love towards one another. Obey that command to love one another. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, we learn this. Your growing love for one another should lead you to live with a proper work ethic. Your growing love. That's the first kind of part. We're going to spend a few minutes this morning just talking about love, what that looks like um, kind of on a general level, and uh, this command to love one another. Your growing love, then we'll get a little bit more specific, should lead you to live with a proper Work ethic. Paul began this letter to the Thessalonian church by celebrating their evident faith in Jesus. So he's writing to believers. And then he spent some time, and you'll recall chapters 2 and chapter 3, recounting his relationship with the Thessalonians in order to, one, defend himself against those who are accusing him of being a fraud, but also to to provide encouragement to those Thessalonian believers. Then, beginning in chapter 4, Paul gets into this part of the letter where he's giving them practical instructions, just teaching. This is how you're to be living. These are things you're supposed to be doing as Christians. These are things you're not supposed to be doing. And that began in in chapter 4. And In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4, Paul issues a call for believers to walk in holiness. To be holy or to be sanctified means to be set apart from the ways of the world by reflecting the ways of God. To be set apart from the ways of the world by reflecting the ways of God. In verses 1 through 2, we learn that in in this desire to live holy lives, we're to be pursuing greater and greater obedience. We're not to become complacent, we're not to, get, not to settle down into our level of obedience, we're to keep growing in that. Then Paul highlights two distinguishing marks of the people of God, two essential characteristics of the church which will set us apart from the world around us. One is purity and one is love. And so the past couple of weeks, we looked at that first one in verses three through eight where we learned that one specific way we're to walk in holiness is by pursuing sexual purity. Now in verses nine through 12, Paul provides another way that we're to walk in holiness. We are to pursue brotherly love. So in this passage, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their brotherly love. This is is an uplifting kind of passage. He's not going to bring the hammer down on them like he does in some places uh, when he writes to churches where they're just completely disregarding some of the commands of God. He begins with really some commendation uh, for their pursuit of brotherly love, but he also is going to call them to keep growing in that love. And to do so specifically by avoiding a lazy lifestyle of taking advantage of fellow believers. So I want to share with you this morning five truths about love that should lead us to pursue brotherly love. Five truths from this passage. Um, Let me read first, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses uh, 9 through 12. God's word says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That is the word of the Lord. First truth we learn in this passage is this, love among God's children should be assumed. Love among God's children should be assumed. We know from the word walk here at the end of, there in verse 12, Paul's still talking about how we're to live our lives in holiness. Really, this word walk bookends this 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 larger passage. We saw it back in verses 1 and 2. Now we see this word walk here at the end of verse 12. Everything in between, he's talking about how we live holy lives. But here he shifts gears just a little bit in verse 9 when he says, now concerning brotherly love. This phrase, brotherly love, is the Greek word, and you know this word. You've said it before, even if you didn't realize that you were saying Greek. It's the word Philadelphia. That's the word here, Philadelphia. It's, it's the Greek word that means brotherly love. Now, there are a few different Greek uh, uh, words in the Greek that mean love. This particular word is, is used in the context of family. This is the way it would have been used in the Greek language. It was used to refer to, uh, to the love between siblings, those who would uh, share parents. They were to exhibit this type of uh, brotherly, sisterly love for one another. But What's interesting is that the writers of the New Testament, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they used this particular Greek word, exclusively to refer and to describe the love believers in Christ are to have for one another. In the the context of their culture, this is a word that would be used to describe blood brothers and sisters. And yet they take this word, Writers of the New Testament, and they apply it and they use it to describe the relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. This tells us a great deal about our relationships with each other. Why would the Bible describe the love between people who are not, biological siblings with with a word that was used to refer to biological siblings why would he why would he take somebody like me and somebody like you and then put in between us this word that describes us as brothers and sisters church the reason is because we are siblings we are siblings we are family we share a heavenly father and we've been united to him and therefore because we've been united to him we've also been united to one another through the blood of jesus the son of god two key passages of scripture that I just want to read for you. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about them. I just want to read them for you. Um, And these two passages are two key passages in scripture where we're clearly taught that we are adopted into God's unique family, the family of God. First one is Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of a Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The second passage I want to read for you, where we see that our adoption into the family of God clearly tall is Romans chapter 8, verses 14-17, through 17, which says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christian, here's what what this means. When when God saved you, he, he not only forgave you of your sins, which is really important, he at the same time adopted you into his family, which means he is your father and every other believer in Christ is your brother or sister in Christ. And if God is so full of love that he would send his only son to redeem us from sin by laying down his life for us in our place, then it only makes sense that that's the God If that's the God that that we follow, if He's that loving, it only makes sense then that His adopted children would also love those whom He has loved so much. If we're going to call God our Father, then we need to love whom He loves. And He loves His children deeply, and so we ought to love His children deeply, which means we ought to love our brothers and sisters in Christ deeply. Love among God's children, love for one another in the family of God—it should just be assumed simply because of our blood-bought relationship with one another. We look at the cross; we just ought to assume I'm going to love—I'm going to love my family and the Lord. But love among God's children should also be assumed because God's clearly taught us to love one another. Love among the family of God, it should just be assumed because God's taught us. Notice what he says here in verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's an interesting statement there. Paul's saying, Church, I can just assume that you are loving one another because God has already taught you to live this way. It's a pretty big assumption on Paul's part, especially when I think about my own life, and how often I fail to put into practice God's teaching. But he's saying, look, I don't really need to tell you to love one another. God's already told you how to love one another. And and, and that kind of leads me to ask a question. Well, how did God teach them to love one another? Well, church, it's the same way that he's taught you and me to love one another. Through his word and through his word made flesh, through Jesus Christ. I mean, God didn't wait until Jesus showed up on the scene to command people to love one another. Go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And you know this, you, you, you have this verse memorized, even if you don't know, it comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says this, you shall love your neighbor, you want to finish it? As yourself. shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that, but he didn't, he didn't say that for the first time. That, that, when, when he was here on the earth, that was all the way back in the Old Testament law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus did repeat it. When he showed up, he repeated it as the second greatest command of God. Second only to the command to love God. But Jesus didn't just command this love with his words. Really, he commanded this love with his actions. When he laid down his life. When he loved us so much that he was willing to die for you and me. How how has God taught us to love one another? He has taught us through His Word written and through the Word made flesh who died on the cross. When we look at the cross, we we see this command. There's There's this command that we've got to imitate that. Jesus is dying to rescue me from my sin, and I must imitate that kind of love toward those He's dying for, towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. Clearly, God has taught us to love one another. Love among the children of God should be assumed. But Paul didn't just have to assume that Thessalonian believers loved one another. He could observe that they loved one another because love among God's children is also evident. This is the second truth we have uh, in this passage today. Love among God's children should be evident. Not just assume, but you should be able to see it. Paul writes, "...for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia." There's action involved in this kind of love. Paul says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Remember, Macedonia is the larger region. Thessalon- Thessalonica is a city in the region of Macedonia. Now notice Paul doesn't say here, for that indeed is how you are feeling toward all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We learned a very important truth. We can spend a lot of time on this, and I'm not going to. We learn a very important truth about love, biblical love. Biblical love is an action, not a feeling. It is primarily something you do, not something you feel. It's true that you might feel love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, but even if you don't have that feeling of love, you still are to act in love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Thessalonian believers were not just talking about their love for one another. They weren't just singing about their love for one another. They were not just trying to feel love for one another. They were acting in love for one another. And not just acting in love toward the believers right there in their own local church, but they're showing love to all their brothers and sisters throughout the entire region of Macedonia. They're not picking and choosing which brothers and sisters in Christ they're going to show love to. They're showing love to all their brothers and sisters in Christ. This visible display of love toward one another has got to be one of the things that led Paul to give such deep thanksgiving to God. Back in chapter 1, where he was thanking God for their salvation you remember back in chapter one, verse three, if you glance back there, if you wanted to, he said that he gave thanks to God for their labor of love. And then he went on in verses seven through eight of chapter one to say this, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What what was it? What was it that was going forth from, the, from them? We don't know the exact form that this love for one another was taking, but however they were loving other believers, it was obvious. It was evident in their lives. It could be, and I think this is very likely, it could be that one of the primary ways they were showing love to one another is that they were collecting money for brothers and sisters in Christ who were in need. There were, a, there were a lot of struggling brothers and sisters in Christ during this time, uh, whether it was from displacement from their homes. It uh, could have been from persecution that was going on. They were looked down on. So it could have been that it was difficult for them to get good jobs. But there were a lot of, a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ in this area during this time uh, that were really struggling, even financially, uh, from that very physical standpoint. And so uh, Paul, on more than one time, commends the Macedonians for being very generous in their giving. And so uh, I think that's probably one of the ways that they were showing their, uh, their love. But whatever form it took, the love of the Thessalonian believers toward one another and toward believers in other places was evident. And I wonder, church, if the same could be said of us. Just think about it. If the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Southside Baptist Church, would he be right in just assuming that we love one another? And then, does our love for one another take the form of observable action such that he could write, for that indeed is what you are doing? I'm assuming that you are, and I know that you are, because I can see it. I think that's a great question for us, questions for us to ask of our own individual lives and then us as a church, so that we're constantly evaluating our love for one another. Love among God's children should be assumed, it should be evident, but listen, it should also be growing. It should be growing. This is the third truth that we see in this passage. Love among God's children should be growing. It should be growing. Even though Paul says they have already been taught by God to love, and even though he commends them for loving one another, he still gives them this command that he's already given them a couple of times in this letter. He says this in verse verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Still notice the action-oriented language of love. Not to feel this way, all right? Feelings can come and go, but we can always choose to show love regardless of our feelings. So we urge you to do this. What is the do this? That's love. We urge you to love, to do this more and more. We spent time looking at this command when we studied uh, chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 4, verse 1. So I'm not going to spend as much time on this command today, but I don't want us to skip over it completely. In chapter 3, verse 12, just remember this. He he prayed, And may the Lord make you increase and abound. That's the same word that's used here in, uh, in chapter 4. It's the same word repeated three times. You would uh, increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And then, chapter 4, verse 1, remember he said this We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And now, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, he says that we're to love one another more and more. Listen, if we walk away from our study of 1 Thessalonians without a burden on, in us, on us, to keep growing in our obedience to Jesus and our love for one another, and I think we've probably wasted our time. I mean, if we walk away and we, we, we don't have this burden to keep growing and getting better and better in our love for one another and our obedience to Jesus, I think we've wasted our time. Paul, I've said this before, Paul's going to, he's repeating himself, so I'm just going to repeat myself, okay? Um, and, and I'm just going to follow along with what he's doing. Listen, there's always room for growth in our relationship with Jesus and in our relationships with one another. There's always room for growth. Why would we need to be reminded of this over and over? Why is Paul reminding of this over and over? Third time we've seen this same command. I think we give lots of reasons. Let me just give one. I think one reason is because we too quickly exchange other people for Jesus when it comes to the standard by which we measure ourselves. We too quickly exchange other people for Jesus when it comes to the standard by which we measure ourselves. Here's what I mean by that. We, we compare ourselves to people who we think haven't reached the level of love that we reached. And then when we compare ourselves to that person or those people, we step back and go, hmm, I'm doing pretty well at loving one another. it's because we, we set the standard of someone else instead of Jesus. And we stop striving for more growth in our love for others because we think, hey, I'm doing better than that person. I'm doing better than that person. When I started running competitively in high school, um, I quickly realized I had a lot to learn. I never ran for fun. I'm not, not going to say even when I ran competitively that it was much fun <laughs> even then, but uh, I, I, wasn't, I was not very good at all. And I quickly realized that when I started running with other people. But there were just all sorts of levels of runners. There, were, there might have been somebody that was not as good as me. I don't think there were many. I think I was probably the worst. But there were some that, that we were about the same age and we were about the same skill level. But I had to decide at practice who I was going to run with. I mean, you, you take off, you've got to run a certain number of miles at practice, and and then and it doesn't take long before that group of runners kind of starts splitting up because there's def, different skill levels. So you've got to pick who, who am I going to hang out with today? Who am I going to run with? And one of the things that I decided to do is I decided that instead of just running at practice with those who are on the same level with me, I would try to keep up with the best runner on the team. I would try to keep up with the very best runner. Now, here's what that meant. Number one, it meant that I left practice really tired. (laughs) Number two, it meant that I never really accomplished my goal, which can be kind of discouraging, right? I mean, I I never beat the best runner. That was out of the question. But here's another side effect of that. It's that I got better. I got better because it exposed my weaknesses. I was able to compare my running style to his running style. I was even able to get some advice from him along the way. And even though by the end of practice, I couldn't see him anymore because he, had, he was long gone and I couldn't keep up with him that whole time, I got better and better and better. Using the best as my standard kept me from getting complacent in my training. As long as I compared myself to the best runner, I always knew there was room for growth. Church, when it comes to loving one another, there's always room for growth when Jesus is the standard. There's always room for growth when Jesus is the standard. And he is the best when it comes to loving others. And he is the standard. He is our standard for loving one another. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34. He said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Wish I could spend a lot of time on this. I can't. I'm going to have to keep, keep moving. Notice it wasn't really a new command, because we, we just read this command back in, back in Leviticus. And this is Jesus, thousands of, years, thousands of years later, saying, I give you a new command. Well, Jesus, we can open up in our Old Testament, we, we, in, our, in, our, in, in our book of the law, of the Levitical law, and we can see this command is not new. But notice what he says next. He says that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Here was the new command. It really wasn't new, but it was new for the people. They had lowered the standard of love so that they, they could look at each other and go, we're doing pretty good. Jesus raised the standard back to what it originally was meant to be. And the standard is himself. Love as I have loved you. That's how you are to love one another. He said in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Then he gives a little more detail. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Which is exactly what Jesus was getting ready to do. How well do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, compare yourself to Jesus. It can be a little discouraging, right? Because we see how, 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 how he outdistances us, outpaces us in love. But that's the way that we can grow. And he's like that very kind best runner who says, let me help you. Let me help you along the way. I'm going to help you get up here so that you can run with me. Love among God's children should be growing. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can show love to one another. If you listed all those, you could think of all kinds of ways that you could show love to one another. But Paul must have been concerned as he wrote this letter that there was one way in particular in which the Thessalonian believers were to be loving one another that needed some improvement. Maybe not for everybody, but at least for a few people here in the church at Thessalonica, there was one way that they were failing or at least being tempted to fail at loving one another well. The fourth truth I want to share with you is this, love among God's children should lead to a proper work ethic. You see this in verse 11, love among God's children should lead to a proper work ethic. If we want to show love to one another, one of the ways, again, it's not a way that we would normally think about, wouldn't normally come to our minds, um, but one of the ways we love one another is through a proper work ethic. Paul says in verse 11, and to aspire, so and the first command being to grow in your love, do so more and more, and to love, excuse me, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So keep growing your love for one another. And then one of the ways you can do that is to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? We don't know exactly what was happening in the church of the Thessalonians, but from both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, we can figure out something. We can realize that there were some people in the church there who had the ability to work but were choosing not to work. Instead, they were very lazy. The word Paul uses to describe this group of people in chapter 5, verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians, and then he uses the same word in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 11, is the word idle. The word idle. Not idol like I-D-O-L, like a bowing down to an idol, but idle like I-D-L-E. I'm not doing anything. Like your car sits there and idles. It's running, but it's not going anywhere. I want you to notice Paul's threefold admonition for these slackers here. Can I call them slackers? That's what, that's, that's what they are, they're slackers. First, he, he says they're to aspire to live quietly. And This is a play on words in the Greek. He's saying something like this. He's saying, be ambitious about being calm. Or you can say it this way, be zealous about leading a peaceful and quiet life. When you take this command in context with the next two commands, his point is that these slackers need to stop intruding into the lives of others by stopping their meddling and idling. By stopping their nosiness and their laziness. Meddling is what he tells them to stop doing in the second admonition in verse 11. He says, mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. In other words, mind your own business, Paul says. Stay out of other people's business. Mind your own business. Do you know what happens when you are not busy with your own business? You end up getting busy with other people's business. That's kind of what he's saying here. You're, you're, you're busy, but you're, you're busy in other people's business, and you're not minding your own affairs. Well, we've got to just quickly go on to the third admonition because we've got to take all three of these together to understand what he's saying. So he goes on and he says, And to work with your own hands. Remember I said there were two ways that these slackers needed to stop intruding into the lives of others. The first was meddling and the second is idling. That is being idle, lazy bums. Paul's basically saying get to work here. He's saying mind your own business and get to work. Listen, work is a good thing. Sometimes we have to be reminded of that. The reason we have to be reminded of that is because work is not always easy. It's not always fun. Work is hard, but listen, work is a good thing. There was work before sin ever entered the world. Adam and Eve were commanded by God to work. We find these words in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is in chapter 2. Sin doesn't come until chapter 3. There was work to be done. Work is good. Now, it got a whole lot harder and a whole lot less enjoyable After sin entered the world and God cursed humanity and all of creation. But work itself is not a curse. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote this, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's so much that I could say just about a a, a theology of work. And uh, we'll have to save that for another time. Just want to make that quick point that, that work is is good. Now, let's get back kind of into these three admonitions here and ask a couple of questions. The first question I want to ask of these three uh, commands to, to, to live quietly, to uh, mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. First question I want to ask is this. What was it that led to some of these Christians being lazy and not working when they had, when they had the ability to work? And what was it that led to that? Now, again, we don't know exactly for sure but let me give you a, a few possibilities. It could be that they thought Jesus was coming back real soon, and so they didn't see a need to work. Oh, Jesus is going to be back, be back any day, so we just kind of quit our jobs, and we just sit around and do nothing. The king is coming. He's going to take us home. So this is kind of vacation till then. It, that's, a, that's a possibility that, uh, that that's what's going on, especially because the next passage of Scripture, Paul gets into the second coming of Christ. You look ahead. That's where he's going in this letter. Another possibility um, was that Greek culture looked down. That culture looked down on manual labor, and so some decided that working in this way was just kind of beneath them. I'm not gonna, not gonna do do hard work because I'm I'm better than that. That that could be a possibility. I'm, I'm gonna land more on the third possibility. And I think this is what's going on here when we take it into context of Paul's command to love. Another possibility is that the believers were loving one another so well. <laughs> by being so generous to one another that some believers were beginning to take advantage of the generosity of other believers. You think about the context here. He's commending them on how well they're loving one another, and we know just from different places in Scripture that one of the ways that they that the, the Macedonian Christians showed love well was by being very generous toward those in need. And so it's likely that there were some Christians who were in need. They were having their needs met by uh, by fellow believers in Christ, but then they kind of said, "Hey, this is nice. I just..." keep letting my brothers and sisters in Christ uh, put food on my table. And even though I've now got the ability to work and I could go get a job, I'm just going to keep mooching off the generosity of, of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's probably what is going, here when, going on here when we take this into context. But let me ask another question. I think this will help us even see that more clearly. What do these things have to do with loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Remember, that's the context here, loving one another, brotherly love. Let's put all these admonitions, these commands together. Think about nosiness and laziness as noise. Just, just pretend, kind of, I don't know the right word, personify those things. Personify nosiness and laziness and think about them as, as somebody making lots of loud noise. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about beautiful noise like the rhythmic crashing of the waves on the seashore that you just listen to and it's just so soothing. That's not the kind of noise I want you to imagine here. I, I want you to imagine an annoying noise. Like somebody snoring really loudly while you're trying to sleep. Or, or maybe, um, maybe somebody blasting music really loudly before you're ready to get up in the morning. Or, or maybe a first-year violinist. You know what I'm saying? Really annoying noise. That's the kind of noise I want you to picture. So Paul's saying, show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ by aspiring to live quietly in the areas of nosiness and laziness. Don't intrude into their lives with the unloving noise of meddling and idling. In other words, the connection between these specific commands and the general command to love is this. If you have the ability to to, to work, but instead are living off the generosity of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're not showing love to them, what are you doing? You're taking advantage of them. Likewise, if you're spending your time being nosy and getting into their business instead of focusing on your own work, then you're not showing love to them. You're being a nuisance to them. And if you are needlessly intruding into their lives with a noise of nosiness and idleness instead of aspiring to live quietly by minding your own business and using your time to engage in some sort of constructive work, then you're not showing, uh, showing love to them. Instead, you're being an unwelcome burden to them. I, I think, as I've studied, I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think that's what he's getting at. But I want to make sure before we move on to the fifth thing and and wrap up, I want to make sure we understand what Paul's not saying. I think this is important as well. I want to make sure we understand what Paul is not saying because we could easily uh, misinterpret and therefore misapply what Paul is saying. Listen, Paul is in no way saying that we are not to be involved in one another's lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't mean by mind your own affairs, mind your own business, stay out of one another's lives. This is not a call to live as Christian hermits. I'm just going to shut myself up and I'm not going to be involved in the lives of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Go back and read chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you're going to see how involved Paul and Silas and Timothy were in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. They were deeply involved in their lives. So we can't say that he means we're not to be involved in one another's lives, nor should we take this to mean that we should refuse the generosity of other believers whenever we find ourselves in need and and they want to come alongside us and help us out. Read Galatians chapter 5 where Paul tells us, bear one another's burdens. This doesn't mean that I pridefully say, no, I don't want anybody to help me out, even though I really am in need and a brother or sister in Christ wants to provide a helping hand. Well, I received that that offer um, thankfully out of love for my brother and sister in Christ, thankful that he or she loves me that way. Nor should we think that this means that other believers don't have the right to confront us concerning sin in our lives. Go read Matthew 18, where Jesus gives us instructions on how we are actually to do that. So if you're committing obvious sin and a brother or sister in Christ confronts you about that sin in your life, you can't say, well, the Bible says you need to mind your own business. (laughs) You can't say that. That's not what Paul means here when he says, mind your own affairs. He's not saying that that you don't have the right to come into my life and say, Zach, there's some obvious sin in your life and I want to come alongside you and help you get rid of that sin in your life. I can't then look at you and say, Paul said, you better mind your own business. I can do whatever I want to do. That's not what he means here. What's the context? The context is that they're showing so much love to one another that some people are beginning to take advantage of that love, probably in the form of generosity, probably financial generosity, which is leading them to say, I don't need to work. That's the context. We don't want to take Paul the wrong way here and, um, and misinterpret and misapply that to our lives. So a proper work ethic is one way you can love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, he's not, he's not finished. We got verse 12 here. And in verse 12, he gets two results, two, two, two purposes of uh, things that will come from uh, following these commands. The, Fifth and final truth is this. Love among God's children should benefit both unbelievers and believers. Love among God's children should benefit both unbelievers and believers. Paul says this, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's start with the first of these two results. When when God's children love one another well, they'll be walking properly before outsiders. Who are are outsiders? Well, outsiders are are those who are not a part of the family of God. Outsiders are non-believers. Just think about it. If the world looks at us, and when they look at us as followers of Jesus, and they see a bunch of lazy, nosy people taking advantage of one another, what are they going to think about us? Are they going to want to be a part of us? More importantly, what are they going to think about Jesus, whom we claim to follow? Now, there is one sense in which we don't care what the world thinks, right? I mean, the world says that we're crazy for believing that Jesus is the only way to salvation, we're going to keep believing that Jesus is the only way to salvation. If the world uh, looks at us and calls us backwards or or bigots for our beliefs regarding God's standard for marriage, then we're going to say, well, that's what God's word says. We don't care what you think. Uh, We say that lovingly, but we say we don't care what you think. We're going to keep following God's commands. If the world thinks we're crazy for spending all of our time and resources and energy taking the gospel to the nations instead of storing up earthly treasures, we're going to say, well, We don't care what you think. We're going to keep pouring ourselves into the mission of God until the day that we die. But there is a sense in which we do care what the world thinks of us. If the world looks at us and sees us taking advantage of one another rather than loving one another and then comes to the conclusion that we really aren't any different than the world around us, friends, that's a problem. That's a problem. The mission of God demands that we walk properly before outsiders so that our good works, including the way that we love one another, serve to adorn the gospel and attract people to Jesus when they see something different in us, something good in us that's not found in the world around us. Jesus said that our love for one another as believers will set us apart from the world in such a way that the world takes notice. He said this in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this, talking about loving one another, all Excuse me. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, by the way that you love one another. So we should love one another well for the benefit of unbelievers. And secondly, we should love one another for the benefit of, well, one another, right? That's kind of how he ends. It's a great way to end this passage. He says, so that you may be dependent on no one. Again, Paul is not calling us to a prideful, reclusive life of self-dependence. Nor is he calling us to refuse the generosity of others when we're truly in need. In context, he's simply saying, so that you provide for your own needs instead of unnecessarily depending on your brothers and sisters in Christ to provide for you. So at the end of the day, both unbelievers and believers will benefit when we love one another well as God's children. Church family, we must love one another well. Think about it. We are children of a God who loves us so much that he planned a great salvation. Who showed us so much love in sending his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins. How then could we not show love to one another? We've been adopted into God's family. And so love should be assumed among us. It should be evident among us. It should be growing among us. It should be leading us to live with a proper work ethic. And when that happens, both believers and unbelievers will benefit maybe today you say i would love to love my brothers and sisters in christ this way but i don't have any brothers and sisters in christ because i'm not even a part of this family i don't mean a member at Southside. i mean a part of the family of god listen if you never trusted in jesus christ for salvation then you're not you're an outsider but you don't have to stay on the outside (laughs) You, you can you can be adopted into god's family by trusting in jesus christ for salvation by repenting of your sins and turning to jesus through faith in him and God will save you, and he'll adopt you into his family. For those of us who have been adopted into the family, let's love one another. Let's pursue it. Let's pursue this holy walk by pursuing love for one another. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? Would you just take a moment and compare yourself to Jesus, the best lover of them all? Would you take a minute and just compare yourself to Jesus and ask the Lord God, show me an area in my life, maybe just one area this morning. Show me one way that I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ better. Show me one way that I'm not loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to repent of it. I need to ask you to forgive me. And I need to trust your Holy Spirit to help me grow in this area in my life. You take just a moment and you pray that to the Lord. Ask Him to search your heart.